Father, we're not here to put on a show, which sad to say is what too many churches are trying to do today. We want to be real. We want to be honest. Uh, We want to look at a hard verse this morning that gets ignored most of the time. And yet your son brought it up right at the very beginning of his sermon because the rest of the sermon uh, goes back to it, depends on it, explains it. And so we need your help. Uh, that we would not only take it in in our minds to understand it mentally, but to uh, put it into practice in our lives and to continue that personal relationship, that we'd be eager to be those who are mourning this week in the sense of what you mean in this passage. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for being the one who's going to teach us uh, that I, too, am just a learner as I stand up here and take in your word. And we appreciate what you're doing, what you're going to do in our lives. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're at uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. We have did an overview. We've kind of jumped into the book. I'm going to read the first uh, four verses of chapter 5 to try to get a little bit of a context that's there and uh, encourage you to make sure you're in the Word, that you're not looking at um, your computer to find out if your oven's turned on or not for your afternoon meal. I know, you people do that, don't you? If it came up to the right temperature, if the dog you left in the car with the car running and the air conditioning on hasn't driven it off the road, like happened to somebody yesterday, some of you got stuck in the traffic, Um, yeah, don't leave your car running with your dog in the car for many reasons. It had air conditioning, it was perfectly happy, but it was jumping and jumping and jumping and it did things and it shouldn't have done them and the car started rolling. So as you're looking at your life, you want to focus in on what God has for us. And I keep telling you, he preaches this to me all week and then I get to stand up with you and share what I learned. All right? This is not a glorification of the worm ceremony as many people want. It isn't why I stand at the back door for you to say, oh, that was the best message ever. Because if you say that to me, I won't believe you. Talk to Jesus Christ if you want to say words like that. But here, this is special. So look at Matthew 5, verse 1. When he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, I hate to chop it off. This message is only... The one that Jesus shared is about 20 minutes. If you're reading out loud, if you're a slow reader, maybe 30. But, but it's not a long message. It's packed. It is just packed with information. I will re-explain to you that blessed are the, the uh, poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy. This is not happening very often in America today. I stressed that last week. Too many people are told, oh, God can fix everything. Oh, come just as you are. You don't need to do anything. Well, that verse right there, Matthew 5, 3, says you need to do everything. You need to recognize that you are spiritually bankrupt. You are a beggar when it comes to God. You have nothing to offer him. It's amazing how often people want to approach God and say, well, I've got a few things on my side. Remember the Pharisee last week, Luke 18, bragging about himself? And then using the poor guy in the room to put him down and say, I'm not like him. And I go overboard with what I'm required to do. I don't just pray without ceasing. I pray without ceasing, without ceasing. I don't know what you're going to claim before God that you think is something special. He's not impressed. 
And so many people think they've come to Christ, as we talked about last week, and they haven't. They never came as a spiritual beggar, recognizing they left everything behind. When you get a little bit further and he tells you the road is narrow, it is so constricted that if you had a backpack on, you have to take it off to get through the little rabbit trail that goes up the hillside. Son, grandson, you need to shape up there, buddy. No, he's good, he's good. He keeps me, he keeps it real. Jackson doesn't like my preaching anymore than the rest of you do, so it's okay. <laughs> but it's a narrow road. It's very constrictive. When you get in there, look up the word narrow. Do a little bit of study on that. And you realize you can't take anything with you. It's not the broad road where you could have your caravan of, of your RVs and your um, U-Hauls and whatever you think you're going to take to heaven, whatever God has blessed you with, and it's all yours forever and ever. You come before the throne and you come weeping. You come bowing. You come begging. Because if God doesn't do something, you're lost. That's what he stressed to this group. Who is he talking to here? Who is the Sermon on the Mount addressed to, as you saw in our opening in the the bigger context? It's a Jewish audience here. It's northern Israel. It's in the Galilee area. These are Jews he's talking to. And he takes them back to the basics, takes them back to kindergarten. Wouldn't you love to go back to kindergarten? Did you learn everything you could from kindergarten? I realized when I got in the first grade, I was already in trouble. I wasn't a good nap taker. That's something you learn in kindergarten, right? What else you learn in kindergarten? ABCs. A, C, B, F, Z, Q. I had things I needed to learn. I wanted to take my time. I wanted to take at least two or three years in each grade. I would have done much better. They kept moving me on and moving me on and cramming more information in my head. And this is what's happened to a lot of religious people today. They know a lot about their denomination. I grew up in one that went out of its way to make books for you to study and classes for you to attend to realize what a great person you would be if you followed their religion. It was empty. The more I studied the word, the more I realized it wasn't in there. They made up a lot of stuff that made them all comfortable and brought them together in a unified group as a denomination. But they weren't really following Christ. And the churches, the one I grew up in, gone. The pastor dropped dead of a heart attack. We left for seminary because I had to resign over sin that was in the church. They told the church I left to go to seminary. They didn't bring up the sin. And it was homosexuality. It wasn't some simple little thing. Cover it up, cover it up, cover it up. Play the game. Show up at church on Sunday morning. How are you doing? Fine. Don't lie to people. Don't sing songs that you don't mean. Think about the words. If you don't mean them, don't sing them. I do a lot. I'll see a verse that I don't agree with in a song, and I just don't sing it. But we go on with the facade. We go on with this front. And what he stressed to them last week we looked at, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy. This takes humility, total humility. You have nothing. You struggle with pride? Don't say no because that would be a lie. We all do. We still have this image of what we think is good or bad. But it's a spiritual um, bankruptcy that requires humility. 
a major part, but it also required repentance. And that's what he started off with back in chapter 14. You have to change your mind to come to Christ. Oh, you don't have to do anything. God accepts you just as you are. Not true. You have to humble yourself. You have to recognize your bankruptcy. You basically come in as a beggar to find salvation in Christ, in God's Son. Many people never came that way. And so guess what? They never came. They have a religion. They're trying to keep it up. They're trying to impress people with what they know. Why don't you try to impress God with who you are? Because all he wants to see is Christ formed in us. And so he takes them from that step, religious people who should have known well, should have known better. He takes them from that step and he moves to this one. He says, blessed are those who mourn. We're going back to the idea of being blessed, happy, favored, fortunate, spiritually prosperous. These are individuals who are privileged and enriched by God, even though they came as beggars. Because God approves the man who submits to the truth. You want to ask yourself, you want to look in the mirror, you don't want to play a game that, well, yeah, I know I'm, a, I'm saved, I know I'm a Christian, whatever that means today. Because 80% of America claims to be Christian. Now that's fading, and I mentioned to you only 20% believe the Bible is the word of God. So they're finally being honest, and they're rejecting what they were raised in. It doesn't matter anymore. That could be a healthy thing. I love it when I get around a non-believer, and they're honest with me. I don't like them swearing, but when they use swear words to describe me or what I believe or what I'm teaching them, I at least know they're being honest. As a preacher, for many, many years, people lied to me on a regular basis. Right to my face. Guilty as could be over over all kinds of things, and they treated me like I was God or something. And I kept telling them, it doesn't matter what you tell me. You need to deal with what God thinks about it. But he comes to them, and if you're really poor in spirit, then you have this lifestyle because blessed are those who mourn. Not only will be, because that will happen in the future, and we'll see that, but blessed are those who mourn. They're rich in the soul. They're joyful. They're at peace with God. Those individuals can come to him. Happy is the man, as John MacArthur I quote from him, happy is a man who is absolutely destitute spiritually, who is nothing but a beggar who has to plead for mercy and grace because it is that kind of man who gets into the kingdom. And so Jesus goes next and says, happy is a man who has personal grief over sin. Now you all have a favorite sin. I do too. And God has been stripping me of some of that and helping me work on it to where it's further and further away. I fight totally different with my wife now than I did when we were first married. She was always wrong. Now she's wrong most of the time. (laughs) I go back and apologize a lot quicker. I did yesterday or Friday, whatever day it was. And he came back and said, that wasn't a good answer. Words of that type. You have to be doing that. You have to be real. You, this has, there has to be humility that dominates our lives. And pretty soon, there is no fighting. And we sometimes are doing better where we'll start doing something and just start laughing. Not as common as it could be, but it happens. Where's your humility level? And then where is your response to sin? When you do sin, I'm not going to assume it's common, or same sin every single time. 
But when you do sin, how do you respond? Don't answer that question. Just think. What do you think about it? Now, that's a good answer, first off, because you're recognizing it's sin. But when you sin and you don't think it's sin, now we've got a whole different problem. What's happened to me? I've compromised somehow. I'm, I'm the frog in the beaker. You remember in high school when you got to, you had to pith them and then you had to dissect them and they wanted the heart to be beating. They wanted, you know, some things that people didn't enjoy. But when you, I remember the teacher in that class dropping the frog in the beaker of cold water and the frog just sat there looking at us, not knowing its fate. It was one of the frogs to be pithed. But when he took the same frog in a beaker that had been heated up pretty hot and threw it in, right out of there, hot water all over the table, and the, the frog's instantly out. What's happened today with the church is they're not only tolerating sin, they are making excuses for it and encouraging it. Major sin. And they want to use the term gone woke. Just call it what it is. Gone sinful. Gone away from God. And we, I hear this all the time. I'm hearing on, on conservative talk shows and radio stations that I try to get news from. And I'm sorry to have to say, but I don't get news from Fox anymore. They've gone too far off track. They're too worried about those watching them and paying their bills than they are about telling the truth. My opinion. I'll get cards and letters and whatever. But I'm watching some other shows that came in bluntly telling the truth, and now I'm watching them. They're starting to bring in other names and well-known people because they're getting bigger and they're getting more money and they're getting more power, and all of a sudden they're bringing in people. And I told my wife the other day as I'm watching one of them, I said, She's a compromiser. They're doing just like Fox did. They're letting in people to start letting in sin. Well, that isn't the, the biggest thing in the world. That isn't the biggest problem we have. The problem is when the church does that. What makes you decide to get up in the morning and attend? Don't answer that either. But it should only be one thing. What is that? Jesus Christ. That's it. You wake up. Good morning, Lord. Thank you for a good night's sleep. And I did thank him last night because I actually slept through the night. And, and I'm, it's a new day. There's opportunities. You walk outside at 5.15 in the morning, and it's gorgeous out. It's calm. I'm a little disappointed that it didn't rain. I was looking for thunder with our window open. That's not my department. Supposedly that's coming today or tomorrow. But that is not the issue. The issue is Jesus Christ. Why am I here today? Because I feel super? Nope. Because I'm the best thing um, since um, they got jelly and jam together or whatever your biggest, um, um, jelly and peanut butter together and your biggest um, joys, you know, sliced bread, whatever they may come up with. No. There's days you go out of here and you're irritated at me. I know that. Because you didn't come for me. You came for me to bring out the scriptures, to share my observations of the text, to share my interpretation of the text, and then you take it and you go work on it for how long? Five minutes? Five hours? Why would you do that? Because God got a hold of me. Something was said that got my attention, and now I'm kind of going, i got to work on that. 
way beyond the pastor. You'd be shocked over the years how many times people told me that they got something out of my message. They'd walk up and tell me later at the door or even later, and i go, I didn't preach on that. But you, you talked about this, this, and this. I said, no. I brought up this. Yeah, you did that, and then they went off on a rabbit trail, and God took them into the scriptures, and you're allowed to go off, and you can deviate from what I'm doing as long as you're in the scriptures. Not playing games or whatever else you may want to do. But they went off, and they found some stuff in there, and God said, this is for you. This is what I want to talk to you about today. And I'm just using Jack as a springboard. You understand that's what church is all about. This is the first day of the week. This is an opportunity for you to go much further than I've taken you in a passage. But he's trying to stress something here that is not understood in the majority of churches in America today. Blessed are the mourn, or, or those that mourn. And MacArthur puts it this way. He says, happy are the sad. Because that's basically what it's saying. Why would I even think that? Why would the world want to come to a church that's telling them to be sad? They won't. And they don't want to. But why is Jesus saying that? What does he mean by what he's pointing out here? The issue is, it's an R. It's implied, but happy R. It's a present tense. It's an ongoing lifestyle of happiness and enjoyment. It's not from drugs, not from alcohol, not from gambling, not from sex, not from possessions, not from popularity, not from fame, not from power, not from real estate, because you're sitting in Hawaii somewhere on what, looking at the ocean. It's not from abilities. It's not from avoiding other people's problems. It has nothing to do with any of that. It has everything to do with Jesus Christ. So I threw in 1 John 1, 9 on your outline. The context there is life in Jesus Christ, verses 1 to 8. Eternal life, fellowship, joy, but it's interrupted by sin in our lives. It doesn't break our salvation or, or stop it from being eternal, it is, but it's not taken lightly by God. Disobedience in our lives is something we should be mourning about. There's days when somebody should all show up at church, even though they don't feel like it, and the first thing they say coming through the door is, I came because I was under conviction. I need someone to talk to. I need to confess my sin and help some, somebody help me. I got a really bad habit that somebody can help. Now, you've already talked to God. That's where you interacted with or where you started. But then God uses believers, and that's what fellowship is all about. But the last thing we ever think about is being honest and being humble at church and really recognizing. I appreciate one of the prayer requests that's in there of someone asking for prayer that they'd be bolder in their witness. Most of the prayer requests in the bulletin are fine. They're real. They're necessary. But they're not very personal in the sense of confession, struggle, needing help. Why not? Those kind of requests are humbling. Those kind of requests bring me back to where I started from. I was a beggar. When Jesus Christ saved me, I was only seven years old. But I distinctly remember, remember my teacher making it clear that I was a sinner. I had no doubt. I distinctly remember everything that went on. I remember going forward in church because of that teacher and receiving Christ in her classroom, declaring it in front of the whole church. I remember being baptized as I turned eight, right in that time frame, and I stood up there with a congregation in another church because we didn't have a baptismal, and I testified the little bit that they let you do back then. It was real to me. 
I had a very strong conscience against sin. And God works on that. It's like what Jim always brings up. Keeping short accounts with God has helped me to remember when I sin in my life and the Holy Spirit comes up with a paddle and whack, and I get it on the backside, I don't scream at him. I don't complain. I don't justify myself. There are many times, once the sting goes away, that I turn around and say thank you and give him a hug, figuratively speaking. That's all I ever wanted my children to do. When I had to go to the extent of spanking them, I wanted them to admit their guilt, receive the punishment, and rejoice over the method God used to get it. Because I sincerely loved them. It did not make me feel better. Love is not warm fuzzies. This is what we use a lot today. Oh, we really love each other. You do. Well, let's really test that. Let's take it to the extreme. And so we keep thinking of situations when you have young children that some of them had already gone out because they're demanding, and they get you up over and over and over and over again in the night, and you're not feeling good. Maybe you're even getting sick. And there they are again at 4 o'clock screaming their lungs out, which is really good exercise but not for your eardrums. So as you're wrestling with this whole thing, you sit there and you go, God, why don't you fix this? Take their pain away. What am I really praying for? Take my pain away. Because all my child is wanting at that point is someone to hold them, someone to comfort them, someone to meet their needs, whatever they may be. Maybe it's a dream. Maybe it's a variety of things that have happened. But to pull in. But when we come back to this, all God is asking for in our lives is that we mourn over sin. That we don't watch Sesame Street with our children and tolerate what they're teaching to them. Have you watched it lately? Turn it off. Turn off Disney. Satan is using Disney to take children down a wrong road. And they finally came out and admitted it. But they've been doing that for decades. Where do we draw the lines on sin? What does it take? It doesn't take the preacher to bring conviction to you. You know some of that stuff is not good. Or you're not reading your Bible. And you can't plead ignorance from not reading your Bible. You're not in kindergarten anymore. How long have you been a believer? What would you expect out of a child that is 25 years old? They still sucking on a pacifier? They still need their diaper changed? Humanly, there are some people in that category. But you know it's because they have mental issues. They cannot grow up physically. You are supposed to grow up spiritually. And yet we keep doing the same thing over and over and over. We don't dig in. We don't work at it because it costs us everything. Jesus is starting at the starting line with them and telling them you need to be a beggar, spiritually broken, before you can enter into the kingdom. What? The Pharisees, Sadducees are all sitting there going, no way. I am not starting over. I've earned myself a reputation here. I've got a special position. I wear a long robe and stand on the street corners on purpose. And they recognize me. You're saying that I need to humble myself, maybe even get on my knees before you and confess my sin? And then worse yet, mourn over it? See, some of the commentaries I looked at with this, they want to bring up, oh, this is you mourning over the world. I don't think so. That might be a separate area that you may mourn over the sin that you see going on around you. No, this is personal. 
that you recognize you're spiritually bankrupt, and then you recognize once God opened your eyes that you're a sinner by choice. How am I doing today? Really excited to come back? You don't have to come back, but but is it just what you come here to be motivated? This is what God taught me this week. Stop playing games. Stop making excuses for movies you're watching and all of a sudden something comes on. And we turned one off the other day because of what was coming on. But I need to do it far more often and maybe not even be able to watch most of what's on there. So-called Christian shows. So-called, I want to get, won't go into details, but stuff that's out there. They're tolerating things. They're justifying things. They're making excuses. Don't do it. You know why I preach that? Because as a good father of my children, I always told them to avoid things that were bad for them. What is sin good for? Nothing. The wages of sin is death. I've watched many people, many believers even, die. I've been in hospital rooms with people who God finally took home, that I was convinced were saved. Others I've watched him take to that position, and they cursed him, and they blasphemed, and they swore, and they got more and more selfish. And I realized they weren't saved. But the issue here is he's trying to get their attention. He's trying to grab their little cheeks. Remember how I keep talking about this? And he pulls their little face up and he says, do you understand what Judaism has taught you is wrong? And I'm going to go, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. You've heard that it was said, but I say unto you. He's going to start correcting the things that they've been taught wrong, bringing them back to a position where they can really get saved. This is what America needs today. Do you understand why it's so bad off? Because the church, and I'm not talking about the 80%, I'm talking about the 2 or 3% that really are believers, are hiding out, making excuses, compromising. Oh, I don't want to get involved. It may cost me something. Am I wound up? Our fellowship with God is interrupted by sin. That's what 1 John 1, 9 is all about. That's where I was supposed to be getting to. God made it so simple for the true believer to confess our sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession means I agree with God. It means I take away my definition, whatever I'm going by this as well, um, living together is okay in some situations. I've warned couples over and over and over again. The most dangerous time in your life is about the six months before you're actually going to get married. If you haven't already violated this and made it a lifestyle. But you're going to be so tempted to justify, well, we can have sex together now. We're getting married. No, don't do it. Don't cross the line. And then I've lived out my life as a pastor and a counselor, constantly dealing with people who thought they could get away with something that God told them, don't do that. It brings in consequences. Is it the end of your life? No. And that's where some of them justify and say, well, we, we did it. We were sexually active for a year before we got married. And look at us. We're happy now. So it's okay, right? No. That's the whole point you've got to get out there. You've got to start teaching people, don't do that. I may have done that. Have you confessed that to people? With your spouse's permission. Have you a couple sat down with another couple that's thinking about getting married and say, we just want to give you some pointers. We blew it. I had a couple do that with me one time in Texas. We messed up. 
So if you have couples that are thinking about getting married and they can use our advice, please send them to us. We will tell them, don't compromise. Don't open your Christmas present before December 25th. Why not celebrate Christmas right now? Why wait till December? Just think how much fun you could have. You could give out presents that fit in the summertime instead of the wintertime. In California, we used to get a bicycle at Christmas or something like that because it'd just be a little bit of rain or whatever outside, and you could do all kinds of stuff in the wintertime. Up here, you give a bicycle, you better have studs on it. <laughs> Maybe skis. But then what happened to Christmas? What would happen on December 25th if you celebrated in July and you had nothing to open? Why would you celebrate Christmas? What's the whole purpose of gifts anyway? Yeah, that's another question. It gets in the way, doesn't it? Because the, the purpose of Christmas is celebrating the birth of Christ. We don't know the exact day he was born on, but you're celebrating the birth of Christ, and we've got it so mixed up with so many other things that when you get there, you're exhausted, and you, you're already thinking about it. Don't bring up Christmas. I'm not looking forward to it. It's a hassle. Really easy when the kids are small. Doesn't take much to satisfy them. But you've got to hide your presence really well. But we just have traditions in America, and we've lost sight of what's going on. I've got wound up all over the place. God wants us to confess sin as believers. He does not want us to live with it. He does not want us to accept it as normal. And that's one of the points I was making, what I keep hearing on the radio and whatever, is these announcers saying, I don't care what you do in your bedroom. Once they say that, what they're really saying is, I don't love you. You go sin however you want. You go lead your life into death however you want. Just leave me alone. I would never tell anybody I don't care what you do in your bedroom. I don't want to know what you're doing in your bedroom, but if it's sin, I care. And you need to stop. And I've talked to a lot of people that have dealt with issues like that. Are we telling people it's okay to live together? Well, you, you don't want to go into marriage without at least knowing what you're getting into. Is that what God says? Bev and I waited. We don't know how to explain it to anybody because most people I talk to have not. And, and that's a sin. We, we have sin. We deserve to go to hell. Don't misunderstand. But that was something we waited. We, we treated honestly. And our marriage has reaped the benefits of that. She didn't go back to some previous girlfriend I had and wonder what I did with her. Because I didn't. There's many things we didn't. I don't have to compare what, what another woman was like and my wife because there wasn't. These are just practical things. The, the bigger picture is the sinful things. The detrimental things that come out of it. And then if you get pregnant before marriage and what it does in a, in a lot of situations. And I've known a lot of people in that category as well. And typically what we focus on is the humiliation in society, which is what many are trying to get rid of, instead of focusing on the sin and the confession to God. Okay, let me move on with this a little bit. I've got you deep and morose. You're mourning. I've, got, I've accomplished my purpose. When he gets to this part here, and he describes this idea of mourning, those who mourn, this is a personal honesty. 
It's a genuine confession where you're agreeing with God. That's what homilgeo means. To confess is to agree with God. You're not keeping up an image with people. You're not pretending that you are perfect in any way, shape, or form. None of us are. Why do we pretend like we are? I told you, come check out my garage. I'd have a lot of people shocked. It's going to cost you five bucks to look in there. I didn't tell you that last week. I got to make something off of it because I'm going to pay one of the kids to clean it up. Just kidding. But, but the humility is what we, we avoid at whatever cost possible, which is why we lie. Notice how easy, man, that lie, boop, it's right there. You don't even have to think about it. They've just embarrassed you. They caught you in something. Your first thought is lie. Cover it up. You know what the problem with that is? It leads to death. And once you've told one lie, what do you have to do now? Lie again, lie again. When those around you know the truth and they don't trust you, and when you lie and lie and lie, you can't remember what the truth is, and you'll start mixing up, which is why the police officers love to get people into a long interrogation. Because if the guy realizes or the girl realizes it, half hour in, they'll ask them this, another half hour, they'll ask them the same question, another half hour, ask them the same question, and the, the people don't realize that they're giving different answers. What does God think about lying? It's an abomination to him. Lying lips are an abomination to him. And I would venture to say that half of you lied this week. I'm just making a human guess. Oh, it's just a little white lie. Kind of like a little baby rattlesnake that doesn't know when to shut off the venom. Lying is an abomination. And we can name all kinds of other things. And all of us wrestle with it. All of us are tempted with it. Jesus was tempted to lie. Tempted in all points as we are. Yet, he never did. Because of his flesh. And so you're struggling with this whole thing. This is, these are individuals who are living a certain way. So the church has a defective sense of sin today. Whatever it may be, and I named a few of them. The surroundings. Lying in politics is common. If you don't lie in politics, they think you're weird. So they don't trust anybody. But we've got this tolerance. We're making excuses. And, and the um, struggle we're making goes against Psalm 1911. You have that one memorized? Psalm 119.11. What did you do with God's word? I hid it in my heart, not just my head. And why did I do that? That I may not sin against people? God. I keep telling you, you want to memorize scripture. The, the Holy Spirit uses it as ammunition. When you're tempted, boom, there comes a verse. People say, how do you remember all those verses? It's because the Holy Spirit keeps bringing them back up at the right time when I need to know them. But I've invested. I invested hours this morning. I just started into the book of Jeremiah. I love the word of God. It is amazing to me. I never have enough time to study it. John and I were talking this morning. You bring up questions. You run into things that you, you, you just want answers to. It's, it's always that way. And I told you when you had questions you couldn't answer, you put them on the shelf. You know how many warehouses I have full of shelves with stuff on them that I want answers to? And I got an answer to one of them 25 or 30 years after somebody asked me. And I found out they were dead. I couldn't go back to them and give them an answer to their question. It took me that long to figure it out. It was sitting in the scriptures. I had to learn and grow. But you're struggling with this. It's an individual decision. It's a daily practice where I keep those short accounts with God. 
Three ways to respond wrongly to sin in my life. Deny it. It will deceive you. Try to fix it in your own strength. That's more like the idea of deny it. Pretend it's not even there. Admit your sin and go into a state of despair. Just self-pity. How well will any one of those work? If I'm denying my sin and deceiving myself, that doesn't fix anything. If I'm trying to do it in my own strength through the flesh, I'm really denying God's help. That doesn't fix anything. And if I admit it but realize, oh, it's hopeless, God can't help me, people can't help me, the world can't help me, psychologists can't help me, psychiatrists can't help me, nobody can help me, oh, woe is me, I give up, and I'm going to go drink lattes or whatever you do. It doesn't solve anything, and yet that's where the world's at today. That's why so many are drunk or on drugs or dominated by sex and pleasures and whatever they can find because that's what motivates them. That's what meets their need. Temporarily, it masks what's really going on there. They know they're sinners. Do you understand? And I've talked to a number of homosexuals over the years, and I realized I was taught by homosexuals that came to Christ and then admitted later, some in writing and some in person, and they said, I knew what you were saying was true. That's why I keep telling people, and I shared with John this morning, share the scriptures. Don't force them to admit anything to you because they may not. Their pride is stopping them. But share the scriptures. Give them the word. It's kind of like planting a little bomb inside. And then the Holy Spirit goes, Poof. And I know a guy that became a believer out of a cult because somebody did that over and over and over. And it was all the basic verses. Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Romans 5, 6 to 8, Romans 10, 9 and 10. And they kept sharing them. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Shared and shared and shared. And the guy kept fighting and fighting and fighting until one day he's driving down the road in Ohio And boom, that little bomb went off. And he realized, I'm a sinner. Well, as soon as you accept that, then God can do something about it. As soon as you recognize your spiritual bankrupt and admit the sin and recognize with this grief of mourning over it, this is an interesting word. This little word for mourn, and I know I'm taking too long and I may not cover everything I need. Richard Trench. He has synonyms of the New Testament. These are Greek words that, that have similarities to them. But they're different. This word for grieve, he says, to grieve with a grief which is so takes possession of the whole being that it cannot be hidden. Those who grieve, that kind of grief manifests itself externally. Well, who, who do you find when there's a mourning like that that's always external? What, what's happened in somebody's life to bring it out where you cannot hide it? It's pretty deep. Typically, it's around the issue of And so as you look at this picture, you realize some examples of that is Abraham mourned over the death of Sarah. Genesis 23, 2. The Septuagint uses this word to translate the Hebrew. One of nine words that they could use, they use this one. That's how Abraham mourned the death of his, of his wife externally. It, it just overwhelmed him. Another one, Jacob, thinking that Joseph was dead in Genesis 37, 34. Again, in the, tra- in the translation of the Septuagint, mourned over the death of Joseph, even though it was premature. His brothers were horrific to do that to their father on purpose. The disciples, before Jesus arose from the dead in Mark 16, 10, used this word to mourn. 
And the world's businessmen will mourn the destruction of Babylon in Revelation 18. Six times it's mentioned in there. That's how deep the mourning is that the city of Babylon has been destroyed in one hour. Ruined everything for them. That was their God. That was their life. That was their purpose, their value. But here John MacArthur gives it a little more explanation on this word for mourning. Nine different Greek words are used in the New Testament to speak of sorrow, reflecting its commonness in man's life. And that's what he stresses first off. Grief is common. Weeping, sadness, mourning. But out of these nine terms, the one used here in Matthew 5, and he gives the Greek word, pentheo, he says, is the strongest and the most sincere. It represents the deepest, most heartfelt grief and was generally reserved for grieving over death of a loved one. And as you'll see elsewhere in Scripture, it's used over grieving over sin when it's appropriate. What am I doing with sin in my life? I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I shouldn't be the one to do it. The Holy Spirit's already been working on you. You must be telling him, no, 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 no. Go away. Leave me alone. Didn't do it. Many excuses. I have many reasons to justify why I did what I did. No, 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 no. Then the preacher comes along and beats on you for an hour. And all of a sudden you go, okay, I give. Shouldn't work like that. Strongest, most sincere representation of the deepest, most heartfelt grief. It's because I've let sin into my life. Is that how we live? How often do you find one another or you find me weeping, mourning because of what I did? I went right back to my wife and said that what I just said to you was totally inappropriate. And I don't remember the exact word, so I'm not trying to quote myself. She readily hugs me in the kitchen. The dog doesn't care. Life goes on. But I felt really bad. That was wrong. And you can tell it stuck. It wasn't just something I did at the moment. It was because it went beyond that. It went to God. It went to how I'm acting. I should never treat her like that. Blessed are those who mourn. They have this personal grief over their own sin. Why are they blessed? You kind of look at this and you think, well, how can they be, how can they be great, happy to be sad? And he says there, for they, and he's trying to bring out the picture here, and I'm skipping some stuff, and I'm sorry. Well, I don't want to skip one. But they shall be comforted. Let me go to uh, James 4 with you. This is really important because this goes right to the heart of the matter. This is James dealing with this issue. Right after the book of Hebrews is the book of James, right before 1 Peter. James chapter 4, he gets into a laundry list. There's ten commands here. And he starts right off in verse 6. He gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to who? The proud. But gives grace to the humble. And because of that, submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. He's talking to these churches that are scattered abroad. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And then he uses these words, be miserable. The word is, this word for miserable describes an army that has run out of food. What would that be like for an army? Supply lines aren't keeping up. They have nothing to eat. Commanders are forcing them going into battle with an empty stomach. They're miserable. But look at the next word. Be miserable and mourn. 
This is that deep grief. And weep, externally showing it. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. I hear people all the time saying, Lord, humble me. I can't find that in the Bible. And if you hear, you listen really carefully, God answers back and says, that's not my department. It's yours. Humble yourselves, it says there, in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. The way up is down. The way down is to recognize that I'm a beggar. I deserve to go to hell. Many, many times over. I make no excuses to God. I thank him over and over again. I listen to music all the time, and most of those songs bring me back, as some of the ones did this morning, to the reminder that he saved me. He took the beggar out of the gutter, as low as I could be, and he's going to make me, he's going to raise me up and let me reign with Christ. Give me an inheritance on planet Earth that we were talking about in Bible study the other day. I don't deserve that. Who gets the glory? I must get a little bit. If you're a Calvinist, you say, because God picked me. No, he didn't. Whosoever will may come. Christ died for the sins of the whole world. He's not willing that any should perish. Do I say these verses often enough that you realize you weren't picked to be saved? Christ died for everybody, and you have an opportunity to believe. And so when he gets here, he says, you will be comforted. I, I reverse these. I had future first off because shall be is a future, but it's later today. It's next week. It's in the next five years. It's into eternity, and that's what Revelation 21.4 says. No more mourning. What's the context? The New Jerusalem. People want to apply everything in Revelation 21 and 22 to the world. It's not the world. There's a bunch of unbelievers in the world who are going to still be mourning. There's going to be people who lose their child at the age of 100. And they're considered a curse. Isaiah 66. There'll be mourning on planet Earth, but not in the New Jerusalem. Because there won't be any sin in the New Jerusalem. There won't be any death in the New Jerusalem. This is where that kind of mourning comes from. It's gone because of what Jesus Christ has done. But backing up to 2 Corinthians 12, here's Paul. He's wanting to come to the Corinthians. And he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 21, I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. And I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, the immorality, the sensuality which they have practiced. That's America today. It's not only being tolerated by churches, it's being promoted by churches. There are whole churches that dominate or dominated by homosexuality. All their leadership, everybody that comes there, they encourage it. This is what he's talking about here. Paul mourned over that. Impurity, immorality, sensuality. We've got to get back to what God teaches us. First off, you've got to realize, am I really saved? Because if I don't have a reaction to sin, if I don't have a problem with sin, there's something seriously wrong. Remember 1 John 3.10, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious, conspicuous, because the children of God love sacrificially devote themselves, not warm fuzzies. It doesn't matter what you do. It does, I will not stop loving you. Jesus Christ showed that kind of love on the cross when they crucified him. And it's also dominated by righteousness, which is what Paul's looking for in the Corinthian church. 
How can you be doing this? It was brought up again in 1 Corinthians 2 with this guy living with his stepmother. He says, or with his father's wife, he says, even the Gentiles don't do that. What are you doing? He turns him over to Satan. When I reread that this week, I was asking God, can I do that? That would be very dangerous. Paul's an apostle. God spoke to him. He was able to write inspired scriptures. I'm not. Be very dangerous if God gave me that capability to say, okay, you cross the line, turning you over to Satan for the destruction of your flesh, so that your soul may be saved. It's not my role. But I, I can ask God to straighten it out. We brought up before as I close off and we look at our world. This church is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. What is that not a sign of in the world's eyes? Success. You must be doing something wrong. How, how did Jesus' ministry work out? How many people did he witness to and share with in his life? Yeah, many, 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 many people. How many witnessed his resurrection? The most at one time? 500. God on earth with 12 disciples who all ran away from him in their final exam. They quit. Jesus must have done something wrong. Or he was asking too much of them. No, he's asking the same thing he's telling these people here. Blessed are those who mourn, those who grieve. It takes a possession of your whole being, and it cannot be hidden. This personal grief. I want you to examine this in your life this week. This is your assignment. I want you, the next time you openly sin, not that you should, but you will, Stop and ask yourself, what, you, what do you think about it? Are you grieving? Does it, does it cause you to have this most sincere, deepest agony over that in your life? Or do you just kind of go, eh, it's over. Don't want to talk about it anymore. Pretend like it never happened. God can't, and he won't. If there's no reaction to me, if I'm not mourning, I'm not saved. If I didn't come as a beggar to receive Christ, if I added anything to my salvation, I'm not saved. One way, Jesus. And if I don't take sin seriously in my life, I'm not saved. Because the Holy Spirit won't allow you to live like that. Remember the Corinthians? Some weak, some sick, a number asleep in Jesus. Remember Hebrews 12, where he disciplines those whom he loves, and you look around, and I've looked many times around at people, and I say, God, you're not spanking this person. They're living in sin, living in sin, living in sin, and there's no indication you're doing anything. In fact, they're happy. They're excited, and they're going around bragging about what they're getting away with. And I go back to Scripture, and it says, they're not mine. I don't spank the other children. I only spank mine. I watch Christians try to play games with sin, I grew up in a family of five. I grew up with a dad who was 100%. When he said something, he meant it instantly, and you better obey instantly, or he will instantly let you know that wasn't a good decision on your part. That was a very good thing to grow up with. People say, well, he was just too harsh. He's too mean. Yeah, once in a while. But most of them I knew exactly where the line was, and when he laid it out, whoop, we obeyed. Dad has benefited me in life in so many ways. That's how God is. Well, he gave me a week to think about it. Oh, look at David. He gave him a whole, you know, 
The baby's already born maybe a year later when Nathan comes to talk with him. What happened to David's life? Disaster. You look at the book of 1 Samuel, and he goes up, 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 till you get chapter 12, sitting with Bathsheba, down, 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 down. And the horrific things that happened with his family. That was on David. He prayed he wouldn't take his kingship away from him. But David reaped the consequences because sin leads to death. I probably haven't followed my outline hardly at all this morning in many respects. But I tell you one thing, God got my attention this week to weep over even the thought of trying to sin, of, of justifying, of playing games with something that God hates. And until I get that regulated in a way in my life that I can go out to others and then the, I'm clean and the Holy Spirit can speak through me to other people and they can't turn around and point out things in my life that are out of line. I don't want to be a hindrance to the work of the Holy Spirit. I want to look like Jesus Christ when he comes back. But I'm going to have trouble looking because I'm going to be on my face. Worshiping. Where are you going to be? How you live today will determine where you end up then. If you don't hate sin, you better re-examine your salvation. If you're not mourning over it when it comes into your life, you better get into the word. Maybe you're just ignorant and you don't know what God wants. Harsh message today. Not a lot of jokes. I didn't know where to put them. I tried. Let's pray. Father, we realize from your word that there's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. That heaven is a joyful place full of worship and praise. Adoration, reverence. Father, I pray that that would be our lives. That contrary to line us with the, with the dirty blanket, I pray it would be the other way around. That there would be a bright light following us around. That when people look at us, they, they don't see a dust cloud. They, they see Jesus. And they ask us for a reason for the hope within us. As the darkness encroaches and gets darker and darker, may we shine brightly. Not to our glory, but to give all the credit to Jesus Christ. And if perhaps sin may enter in, may we be quick to mourn, quick to confess, quick to correct it and get it right, and to get back in a right relationship, right fellowship with you. Father, I'm not an entertainer. I don't even consider myself a great preacher. But your word is powerful. I pray that it came out clearly today and that we will not easily forget it in the next couple days. Change us to be like Jesus Christ. And to bring you glory only, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together with a closing song that I don't remember what it is. That's what God's asking for. Let's stand and sing together.
Sing it as a prayer. I guess it goes on. Make it ever true. Change my heart, oh God. May I be like you. You are the potter. Again, if you don't know Christ today, I'd love to talk with you, share scripture with you, and help you to come to know him. Men will meet at 5 o'clock in the kitchen tonight. Bring your Bibles and your questions. Get to know somebody. Don't rush off this morning. Thank you.